there's a popular meme on the internet that goes, we need a total and complete shutdown of X until we can figure out what the hell is going on. The line comes from a crazy thing Donald Trump said in 2018. I will spare you. Anyway, I don't follow Europe's antitrust, or as they call it, competition scene all that closely. But when I do check in, I tend to find myself thinking, we need a total and complete shutdown of European antitrust until we can figure out what the hell is going on. Margaret Vestager is the European Commission's Commissioner for Competition. That, at least, is her official title. I tend to think of her more as a trade representative whose main work consists of placing tariffs on American technology products. Vestagera sought to punish Apple, Google, and Qualcomm, and it's likely that before long she'll be doing the same to Amazon and Meta. The European Commission calls these penalties fines or taxes, but from where I'm sitting far away in California, it looks like we should just call them rents. Vestager says she is not driven by animus or bias against America's tech industry, and that may well be so. After all, America's own antitrust authorities have been closely scrutinizing these companies, too. Unlike with the DOJ or the FTC, however, we can't really know whether Europe's competition enforcement is anti-American or neo-mercantilist because we can't compare how Europe treats foreign big tech firms with how it treats domestic ones. Europe does not produce mega successful tech companies, it only regulates them. But I'm getting ahead of myself. This, of course, is the Tech Policy Podcast. I am Corbin Barthold. I'm joined today by someone who, unlike me, actually knows what he's talking about when he talks about European competition law. Dirk Auer is the Director of Competition Policy at the International Center for Law and Economics. He is also an adjunct professor at the University of Liège. He is the perfect person to help me figure out what the hell is going on, and I'm thankful that he is here. Dirk, welcome. Thank you very much for having me on your show. Uh, I would say uh, good morning, but it's the afternoon over there. We're doing this. This is a global conversation, so I appreciate your coming on. Um, I do antitrust stuff myself in the U.S. for a living, and even I find myself getting completely uh, turned around with European competition law. Uh, so it's probably a good idea to start at the beginning with just a very brief overview of how the European Union goes about its antitrust or competition regulation. Uh, so in America, you know, the FTC and the DOJ coordinate, they can bring cases, sometimes they're administrative at the FTC, they can go into court. They really can't get anything done until there's been some kind of an adjudication. Uh, how does that compare with the European system? How are prosecutions brought? You know, what's just the basic procedural framework? Sure. So um, one of my favorite films is uh, Pulp Fiction. And there's a, there's a really good quote from that film where uh, John Travolta and Samuel L. Jackson are in a car and they're talking about Europe and Amsterdam. And they sort of, they say, well, you know, Europe, in Europe, everything's the same, but a little different. And that's kind of how I would summarize the difference between European competition law and uh, US antitrust. So you have the same building blocks. For example, the commission, just like the DOJ or the FTC, is going to bring cases um, enforcing the competition laws, as they call them. Um, you then have below the competition or you know, in the US uh, DOJ FTC, you have national competition enforcement, and that's kind of the equivalent of in the US having state AGs bringing cases. Now, that's sort of the similarity, but then there are some differences. So for example, unlike in the US um, where state AGs, the FTC, the DOJ are just normal antitrust plaintiffs and they have to go before the courts like any other plaintiff, in the EU, competition authorities um, have the power to impose fines themselves. And so it's then up to firms to appeal those decisions um, before 
um, you know, depending on the case, it would be before the European Court of Justice, it's a commission decision, or before national courts, if it's a decision from uh, a national competition authority. That has important um, implications. Like if you're a lawyer, you know that there's a difference between being a plaintiff and having to bring a case. Um, and um, on the other hand, saying, well, this is the case, like the, the commission's decision is the case, and I need to show that that was wrong, right? Um, it's always, it's a matter of who bears the burden of proof, and that makes a difference. So, um, I mean, that's one big difference. Then if you go into substance, again, a lot of similarities. So in under US antitrust law, you have things like predatory pricing, other cases like RPM, vertical agreements, horizontal agreements. You have all of that in the European Union, but usually with a spin, right? So um, basically the unifying theme is the European case law on these things is more favorable to plaintiffs and less so to defendants. So for example, if you look at something like predatory pricing in the United States, a plaintiff would have to show that there was um, pricing below some measure of cost and that the, um, the monopolist could then recoup its losses. Whereas in the EU, you don't have that recoupment condition. Similarly, like in the, EU, in the United States, essential facilities cases where someone is saying, well, uh, you know, I'm a rival, I need access to that monopolist's infrastructure, or I will be, uh, I will have to exit the market. Those cases are exceedingly rare and difficult to bring in the United States. They're relatively common in the European Union. And like a final difference I could point to, there are many others, but this is a salient one. In the United States, retail price maintenance, where supplier um, basically tells um, its distributor, uh, its distributor or distributors at what price they can retail a product. In the United States, that is um, assessed under what's called the rule of reason. So uh, courts are going to weigh pros and cons. Whereas in the European Union, that is uh, a per se prohibition or by object uh, restriction, as they call them in the European Union, which means that if you're a plaintiff and you can show that RPM has taken place in uh, the European Union, that's game set and match. There's no need to show harm to consumers. So, yeah, um, well, now, sort of similarities and differences. It's very early in the morning where I am here in California, and yet I'm I'm kind of hungry for a royale with cheese. Um, for any Pulp Fiction fans, is the basic theoretical framework still the consumer welfare standard, though? So, if you put a pro se uh, a per se bar on resale price maintenance, maybe that's just you don't accept the theory that there are potential benefits to forcing your um, downstream retailers to, you know, up their uh, service or whatever. And, you know, that's baked into the price. That's a theory that's very Chicago. And we yeah. basically accept that. And you could reject that theory and still say that your, your, your law is aiming at shooting for consumer welfare. I mean, is that still, I still maybe is a betrayal of my thoughts here, but is that the view yeah. in Europe? That's, that's still the goal or no? To some extent. So I think of US antitrust law as being a little bit more consequentialist. Basically, you look at behavior and how it affects consumers. And that, to a very large extent, is um, how you decide cases. In the European Union, um, competition law um, pursues, in the Commission's own words, uh, a variety of objectives. And some of those are really about consumer welfare. So there you have a similarity with um, US antitrust law. But on the other hand, some, some of the objectives are not. So you'll sometimes hear the Commission talking about fairness, which even the Commission concedes, I think, does not mean very much. Uh, perhaps more, um, more useful is the following distinction. The um, US antitrust law often talks about consumer welfare. European competition law often talks about protecting the competitive process. Now, a, an important distinction could be 
to a first approximation, European competition law is going to be more worried than US antitrust law about behavior that makes competitors exit the market, right? In the US, you'll say, well, competitors exiting the market, that's just the part of competition, right? Healthy competition is going to lead firms that are not efficient to exit the market. In the European Union, the commission will say something like, yes, that's right, but um, if you have a market with only one firm, that's not uh, ideal. That's not good for the quote-unquote competitive process. And so, um, yeah, again, European law is a competition law is a little bit tougher on defendants. Yeah, and, and maybe it's not fair of me as an outsider to be so critical. Granted, I am a Californian who's very critical of my own state. So I, I hope I'm sort of even-handed. Uh, but one reason that I see... Commissioner Vestager as just a tariff imposer uh, is I, whenever I read her comments, I, I just absolutely struggle to understand what the underlying antitrust philosophy is. You know, sometimes her rhetoric is competition oriented, although I get confused because she'll say something uh, about like the importance of innovation. And when companies come along and actually innovate, when Google actually makes the Android operating system, she absolutely um, um, demonizes them and talks about greed. Uh, sometimes her rhetoric is about equity. You know, she, uh, this, this line actually really irked me. She says, you know, we really need a more open, transparent, predictable, regulated space where the benefits are somewhat distributed Emphasis on somewhat mine, as if like tech companies, they provide no consumer surplus. They're just these extractive uh, companies. And so it's their profits that we need to distribute as if their products themselves just are uh, like a given, just a default. They're just there. And then we're going to tax them. Uh, sometimes her rhetoric is about democratic values which actually I think is the, the fairest one because just come out and admit that you want to punish companies because you don't like those companies. It's kind of all over the place. And so it leaves me sort of picturing it as like the, my wife actually described it more with more flowery prose than I did last night. You know, the potentate on the Silk Road who just... <laughs> You know, caravans are passing back and forth, and but you control the road, so you get to extract whatever you want. But then added with righteous language that you, what you're doing is, oh, you're, you know, the just beneficent one. Um, that's my total diatribe. That's probably way overboard. But um, given your description of, of what the antitrust goals are in Europe, I mean, am I being totally unfair, kind of unfair, like... I basically have it. I mean, as a European, have I just offended you? No, I'm not offended. And I think, I think there are a couple of keys that are useful to understand why um, Vestago is saying what she's saying. So the first one is that it's really important to understand that Vestager, unlike, uh, say, Lena Khan in the US or other US FTC commissioners, she's a career politician. She's much closer to, say, Senator Amy Klobuchar than uh, Lena Khan, right? What that means is when she's giving a speech, she's a politi politician trying to um, convey the message that she's being aggressive on big tech and trying to speak in terms that resonate with voters. That's what she's doing. That, so that's the first thing. And so what someone like Vestager says in speeches doesn't necessarily match the reality of European competition law. Now, that being said... Wait, second, wait, wait, wait. And yeah, yet she's ahead. the enforcer and she can impose fines before ever having to adjudicate it. So there's yeah. a real tension between what you just said. Like, anyway, sorry. This, is a, this is a much more politically charged... Um, system of antitrust enforcement than in the United States. There's no doubt about that. And the European Commission has been criticized for being politicized. Um, it's some people in Europe see that as, um, as a feature rather than a bug. I don't fall in that camp. I, I think there are 
real problems when you um, mix political goals and antitrust. And I think antitrust enforcers should be much closer to something like central bankers, uh, just trying to set, you know, what I, my ideal central bankers. So just trying to set uh, the interest rates to keep in, uh, inflation under control. Um, that being said, so, you know, this may have sounded a little bit like a defense of Margaret Vestager and the commission, but I will say that there are- Which there you're are... welcome to do. I, you know, <laughs> I didn't mean, go ahead. I mean, you know, uh, I'm, I'm not in, I am relatively critical of the commission, uh, but everything isn't bad for sure. Now, where there is a problem is that it's a fact that European competition law tries to pursue different objectives with a healthy dose of politics. And that is problematic, right? It means that in a given case, firms have um, probably less information you know, beforehand about what behavior might infringe European competition law. These multiple objectives and the politics give uh, competition authorities in Europe much more leeway to bring the cases that they want to bring. And so there's also some, they have more discretion is another way of putting it. And if you believe um, in the separation of powers, and the right to a fair trial, this is not ideal. What I will, what I will say, yeah, sort of, yeah, I started with a defense of the European competition law. I was then a bit more critical. One, one defense that I will give, so, um, a counter argument, is that at the end of the day, as, as is the case in the United States, the people who are really in the driver's seat of European competition law are judges in Luxembourg. And they have not always done uh, an ideal job of, you know, of ruling on cases. But in recent years, there has been, they, they, the judges in Luxembourg have given real thought as to what European competition law should look like. And you see a steady, you know, stream of cases of rulings where the court is um, coming up with a framework to decide competition cases, a framework that I think is to some extent strikes a good balance between economics and legal certainty. Let like me that. stop you right there because yeah. what I, I think we can do is we can talk about a case that I think sort of uh, illustrates the politicization and then maybe we can circle back to the courts and talk about how the courts are maybe, sure. maybe could be yeah, described absolutely. as pushing back. So the example uh, is the big antitrust news uh, recently in Europe, the Illumina Grail deal. Um, for those of you who don't follow these things, that might sound totally foreign to you, but this is potentially a very landmark case because it has a lot of elements that are, are not normal in merger enforcement, or that's, you can correct me once I'm done talking. Uh, Grail basically does uh, advanced cancer detection uh, in ways that are impressive and magical and I cannot get into the details. But my understanding is that they are pushing the envelope and uh, they were, I, I believe at one point they were owned by Illumina, Aluminum spun them off and is now looking to repurchase them. At the moment, they are out on totally uncharted territory. You know, picture um, Apple releasing the first iPhone, you know, in terms of the degree that they are making something that just doesn't exist in the market yet. And there are no competitors, again, is my understanding. Um, they don't do business in Europe, is also my understanding. They don't have customers in Europe. Uh, they are not in Europe yet. I'm sure they would aim to be one day. Uh, and yet Europe has moved to block the deal. Uh, so if you could tell me a bit, because actually this is, you had a great thread on Twitter on this, you know, what's the case about and what is up with the effort to block the deal? Yeah, so it's a, it's a very surprising case um, and I think very problematic too. So there's, there are two Sort of the case exists on two levels, and I think it's important to separate them. One is the procedural level. 
and one is just the substantive level. So, you know, sort of the economic arguments that underpin the case. Now, before I get into those two things, it's useful to take a step back. In competition policy circles, there has been a lot of discussion about so-called care acquisitions. And the idea is this, a monopolist might sometimes buy a rival that could enter the market in order to um, basically to take that rival out, okay? This Illumina Grail is not really a killer acquisition case, but what's important is that in those killer acquisition cases, um, one of the fundamental building blocks of both US merger enforcement and European merger enforcement seems to be problematic, right? The way we do merger enforcement in Europe and the way it's done in the United States is we ask firms that meet certain turnover thresholds to notify their merger to competition authorities. And the care acquisition literature has some people saying, well, those turnover thresholds are not, um, are not ideal because some firms have no turnover and may be competitively relevant. So like the example that people cite all the time is Facebook, Instagram. Facebook was able to acquire Instagram with very little competition oversight because basically Instagram had no turnover, right? So sensing that the commission says, well, I need to do something about care acquisitions. And this is a big theme of European competition or let's do something. We can't sit idly by. And so they, they say this, they look at their merger regulation and they say, oh, we have this Article 22 provision. And basically, Article 22 was, I think of it as a, a federalist provision. And what it says is that member states and their competition authorities can ask the commission to review certain mergers. Implicitly, when that was written into law, the idea was, well, some mergers, um, even though they fall under national thresholds, not European merger thresholds, they're competitively relevant to the entire European Union. Okay, so that procedure exists. The commission takes that and finds a loophole in there, which is, wait a minute, Article 22 doesn't even say that for a national member state to send the merger up to the European Commission, Article 22 doesn't say that the national member state has to be competent itself to review that merger. So even if a merger is not notifiable in a, member, in a member state, member states can still ask the commission to review it. And then you see where that's going. There's no limiting principle to Article 22. So as soon as a member state says, oh, I would like the commission to review a, a merger, the commission can take the case. Um, and that's what happened in Illumina Grail. The Illumina Grail doesn't fall under either national merger thresholds or European merger thresholds. And the, the merging parties at the time, and I think they were perfectly sort of right to come to that conclusion, they thought, well, we don't need to notify this merger at all. We can just, um, you know, if I'm Illumina, I can just buy Grail and go ahead with business. Um, I think it was France that sent that merger up to the European Commission who says, no, 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 Illumina, now you need to notify that merger with us. You need to stop what you were doing and we will take a look at this merger. Illumina appeals that decision Unfortunately for them, they lose in the Court of Justice in Luxembourg. And so the commission could and already had started substantively reviewing the merger. Um, on well, that I will stop you here yeah. and, and say that at least here, I will admit, I, I definitely smell a, a similarity to the American dysfunction. Our federalist system has all <laughs> kinds of virtues, but the fact that say like North Dakota can go in and like do antitrust prosecutions is maybe questionable in a ginormous continent-wide national market. Okay, proceed. <laughs> yeah, no, but I mean, you're right. There's, there is a, a really deep problem when you don't have a proper separation between sort of what's um, federal and what's sort of state level or in the European Union, what's European and what's national. So anyway, substantively, I think the case is, it's, it, it's very problematic, not least because after reviewing the case, the European Commission says, well, I will, we're going to block this merger outright. Now, to give a bit of context, this is a vertical merger. What it means is um, basically, Illumina is a supplier for Grail, a supplier that I might say, you know, actually created Grail and spun it off years ago. So it's, um, you know, 
it's a special supplier relationship. But anyway, it's a vertical merger and the track record of even the European Commission on those mergers is to be um, very permissive. And if you take issue with one of those mergers, the usual practice is you allow the parties to come up with remedies. The reason for this is simple. The economic literature, empirical, on vertical mergers suggests that they're generally beneficial to consumers, right? Um, so I actually saw more, when you said that, <laughs> that on Twitter, you were getting all kinds of pushback from creditable people, credible people. Yeah. And I was like, man, because, you know, I, I'm not like deep in the literature, but I thought that that was still pretty well taken for granted, the efficiencies, generally speaking, of vertical mergers. Absolutely. So absolutely, there are, you know, there are a number of uh, empirical reviews that arrive at this conclusion. You will find one empirical review that says, well, actually, it's about 50-50. So as many vertical mergers are harmful as mergers, as vertical mergers that are not harmful, I don't think that fundamentally changes the analysis. Because what those, you know, if you look just at that literature, you might say, well, antitrust authorities only have a decision between allowing or blocking mergers, but that's not the case. They can take those 50% or, you know, 30% of harmful vertical mergers, and they can say to the parties, look, you need to have this type of behavior to prevent harm from occurring. And in a vertical merger, it's not very complicated. If you think that a vertical, uh, maybe I'll take a step back. If, you, if you're the commission and you're saying that the problem with the Illumina Grail merger is that at some point, Illumina will refuse to supply its inputs to Grail's rivals that might somehow appear in the future, there's an easy solution to that. You say to Illumina, okay, you can merge, but from now onwards, you have to supply Grail's rivals on fair, reasonable, and non-discriminatory terms. Now, that's not ideal for the merging parties, but it's way better than having the merger blocked. And that is how um, both American antitrust authorities and European antitrust authorities have been going about pro sort of quote-unquote problematic vertical mergers in the past. And it's very hard to understand why the commission departed from that sort of practice here. And some people in Brussels are just saying, well, the whole procedure with Illumina and Grail was um, extreme, went extremely badly. The part sort of the, the parties sort of fell out, didn't really want to be talking to each other anymore. The commission was upset and decided that it would just um, be very aggressive about what it was um, going to get from the case. But I think it's, um, it's a really disappointing outcome for European consumers because at the end of the day, there's, there's reason to believe that that merger would have been very beneficial. Okay, so we have, uh, we've now discussed a case that uh, is kind of, uh, I would argue there's politics involved. I mean, even when you suggest, and I'm out over my skis because I don't know the details, but the, you know, the talks fell apart. It's like, oh, wait, so you're prosecuting it out of peak? Like, you know, how dare you defy us? Um, so there's the, the, the hint of politicization. But then, as you mentioned, you have to, you get your fine, you have to go into court and, uh, recently, things have been uh, pretty uh, spotty for the commission in front of the courts. I mean, uh, the commission tried to claw back, and these numbers are goofy, like you'll see different monetary conversions online, but I'm going to use dollars. 15 billion uh, against Apple in supposed taxes that were owed, but that got overturned in 2020. Um, a $2.7 billion fine against Intel was overturned in 2022. Uh, that was from way back, to be clear, uh, the initial fine, very old. $1.2 billion fine against Qualcomm was overturned in mid-2022. Um, there was also the Google Android decision, which just came down, which actually largely upheld. But then you'll have to explain to me about whether that's final in the European court system. Um, and then digging into this as someone who vaguely knows antitrust, but is not deeply steeped in these cases, some of them had some, um, they seemed like pretty harsh treatments of the way the commission had gone about things. Um, the Intel case, it sounds like there was sort of a failure to do even 
basic cost benefit analysis. Uh, the Qualcomm case, it seems like there were some serious procedural irregularities that went to due process. Um, so could you speak to this sort of shoot first, justify in court later approach? Does it work? Is it actually that it's just too hard to prove cases? I mean, what's the pro what's creating these discrepancies and potentially just lots of wasted effort and rigmarole uh, to go back to my beginning theme, you know, what the hell is going on? Yeah, so there's many things going on. Um, one of them is, as you rightly point out, is that Vestager, since she became uh, the chief of DG competition, so the, the body in charge of enforcing European competition law, um, she's been extremely aggressive in pursuing cases. And that's uh, like anywhere, that's a high risk strategy and it can blow up in your face when, um, you know, if courts disagree. But that's, I think that's, you know, it's important to know, but it's not the fundamental force at play here. The fundamental thing that's happening in these cases has much more to do with Luxembourg and the European Court of Justice. So if you, you, look a bit further back in history, the European Court of Justice had a reputation for being um, two things, extremely deferential to the commission and not very well um, informed about economic thinking. And that, you know, that criticism sometimes even came from the commission. And, you know, the judges in Luxembourg, they're can say what you will, but they're very, I think they're very smart legal scholars and they, I think they rightly perceived that some of that criticism was true. And so over, say, the last 10 years, they've been um, rethinking their case law on the, for European competition matters. And the ground zero for that, I think, is um, the Intel ruling, right? So in Intel, basically, um, the commission um, brought, you know, um, brought a rebates case against Intel. So it was saying, well, Intel, you're giving discounts to some uh, OEMs who put your chips in computers. And the commission says that infringes European competition law. It drives firms like AMD out of the market. Um, and, you know, we think you infringe European competition law. In doing that, the commission um, takes a very odd stance because on the one hand, they say, oh, you know, the case law in Luxembourg is super favorable to us. We don't need to show that your behavior actually um, harmed consumers or excluded as efficient rivals from the market. But, you know, for the sake of discussion, we'll, we'll at least hear Intel your arguments on those points. Intel says, fine, you know, I'll show you economic evidence saying that my behavior doesn't exclude as efficient rivals. When it gets that the results of that evidence, the commission says, well, I don't care because I don't need to show that your behavior excludes as efficient rivals. This is sort of almost, um, to take US antitrust terminology, almost a per se case, not quite. So the commission finds Intel and Intel appeals, and they go to the general court in Luxembourg. So that's the first sort of level appeal, level of appeal in Europe. And the general court says, yeah, commission, you're entirely correct. Intel says, okay, I'll appeal a second time to the upper court in Luxembourg. And that's the, the last level of appeal. And there, the court of justice says, wait a minute, this is something here is not right you can't just assume that these rebates harmed consumers. You actually have to listen to the economic arguments that are being put forward by Intel. Um, and so there, Intel wins its case. The case is sent back down to the lower court in Luxembourg to re-examine the facts. Uh, Intel wins there, and that's where things are now. And um, at this point, it's basically game, set, and match for Intel. And how does um, that relate to the um, the Android ruling? Because I saw the Intel ruling yeah. and uh, I was like, fantastic. Okay, you know, uh, there's some uh, uh, disciple of Robert yeah. Bork, you know, sitting in Luxembourg, you know, I'm, I'm all for it. 
And then the Android case seemed to be, uh, I mean, I have not read the thing, so you can correct me, but it seemed to kind of revert back to just sort of formalistic, like using legal logic as if that's how you solve antitrust cases. I should back up and say, you know, the Android case, there are several issues at play, but one of the most fundamental ones is complaining that, you know, some of Google's apps are presets on the Android operating system, uh, assuming you accept certain conditions when you put that operating system into your phone. So it's like, oh, you get this free operating system, but oh God, you know, people might have to go and like separately download their preferred apps if they're crazy and like think some other search engine is better than Google. Another story about my attempts to try others. Um, so, then I read, though, that, you know, this shows my ignorance of the whole system that like, so is that the general court? So they have, they, they will now be heading to Luxembourg and we might actually still be seeing a Intel style reversal here. Yeah, that's a, that's a possible outcome. So I think there's, there's sort of two stories to this case. One is um, the sort of evolution of case law story. And the second one is just really the substance of the case. So I can start with the evolution of case law. Um, Again, as in the US, I think courts often take two step forwards, one step back, and are trying, you know, via iteration to find the right balance. And I, you know, if you're on my side of the debate, the Google Android ruling does look a little bit like a step back. Um, there's no other way to put it. Maybe being a bit more technical, what happens is the Intel ruling that I talked about was about rebates. Okay. So that's, um, firms offering discounts. And there's like two schools of thoughts in Europe as to what the Intel case means. Like one school of thought says, well, this Intel case law, it only applies to price-related conduct. Okay, so when firms are giving discounts, when they're pricing below cost, things like that. On the other hand, it doesn't apply to non-price conduct. Some of the stuff that's happening in the Google Android case. The other school of thought which I ascribe to, is they say, no, Intel applies across the board. And so they would likely think that when the Android case goes to the upper court in Luxembourg, the upper court may be favorable to Google. Um, and when you look at the Google Android ruling, and we can talk about it in a bit more detail, you actually see that there's three types of conduct that the commission is challenging. And the commission wins its appeal for all the non-price conduct, because there the general court says, oh, that case law is super favorable, easy game for the commission. Conversely, there's a, a price-related component to the Android decision. And there, the commission actually loses its appeal because it fails to meet the stringent standards that the Court of Justice laid out in Intel. So you really see how, um, it's a lawyer thing. Like standards of review are really, really important. Um, and they dictate. I think that will be the big question when um, the Android case is appealed. Maybe this is all a bit abstract. So I'm happy to sort of uh, go into a little bit more detail about what Google did and why the commission thinks that's problematic. So, yeah, that'd be great. Um, particularly because this, this I, I, I find the... Android case to be a quintessential example of um, treating innovation as a default, as if it just falls from heaven and then regulating it, um, where the operating system gets created by a company, the company presumably, and then they offer it for free. Uh, obviously nothing in life is free. How are they recouping their expenses? Well, one way they do it is by saying, look, we'd like our apps to be pre-installed on the operating system if you use it. They're not angels. They're not doing it out of charity. So I, yes, absolutely. They're doing things to uh, ultimately make a profit from their innovation, but they are innovating. Uh, and then to come in and act like the innovation is just um, there as if it just appeared and then say, okay, now what, what are you giving me now? Uh, is is a really backwards way to view things. Um, but uh, that's just my quick yeah. take. You go, go, please, go ahead. You know, I, I, uh, 
a large part of my PhD is about the Android case. And I make exactly that argument saying, well, you know, the, the, the case that the commission is bringing against Google Android essentially undermines Google's incentives to invest in that product. Why is that the case? Um, I think it's useful to understand what Android is. Android is an open source operating system. What that means is that anyone can take that code, copy it, and put it into another mobile device, right? So you might think, well, why is Google doing this? Why do they offer a product that can be copied by anyone? And the answer is obviously that Google isn't a philanthropist. They want to make money. And the way they make money is by giving Android and the apps away for free, but in exchange, they try and they, you know, the Google's apps on the phone increase the likelihood that users will use Google's other um, products like its search engine. And that's how Google makes money. Now, um, sort of to make, to make this Android strategy work, Google had to do a number of things because Android, as I said, is open source and there are problems with open source operating systems. So um, Google has a couple of provisions in place. One, it says to um, OEMs, so people who build phones and put the Android operating system on them, it says to OEMs, look, you can have Android for free. That's a given. It's open source. And you can have Google's apps for free on the condition that when you install the Play Store, which is very central to the Android ecosystem, you also have to install a number of Google's other apps, like uh, Google Chrome, the Google search bar. And the idea for Google is, well, you know, we give these, these products away for free. We want to be sure that users will um, use our search services. Okay, so that's one thing that happens. A second thing is that Google understands that people can take the Android source code and modify it. And that can be a problem, right? Because if you're a developer, you don't want to develop for 15 different versions of Android. You want to develop for roughly one version or you know, sort of different forks, but relatively close to each other. And so Google says, look, you're perfectly fine to modify Android, but if your version of Android is too far from what we consider the correct version of Android, we won't give our apps to you, okay? And finally, the last thing that Google does is they pay OEMs, so the people who build Android devices, to place the Google search bar. And the idea there is just ensuring that when I buy an Android smartphone, there's a high likelihood that I will use the Google search bar. Um, the commission says that excludes rivals, it makes rivals' life more difficult. And Google says, I'm oversimplifying, but it benefits consumers. At the end of the day, if you're a consumer, this is a very good deal for you. You get Google's products. You don't pay for them. What's the problem? Um, you know, we could then go into the legal intricacies, but it goes, the, the, the sort of the conclusion goes to what I was saying before, which is, well, what's the appropriate standard? Does Google's um, behavior make rivals' life more difficult? Yes. And if that's the standard, um, the commission wins its case. But does it um, make consumers' life or consumer welfare worse? I don't think so. And if that's the standard, then Google should win. And that's what we'll find out on appeal. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, the other thing that's at play here that uh, irks me a bit is this assumption of selective rationality. So uh, these big tech firms are so smart, they're man manipulating you and you, the consumer, are this hapless rube who doesn't know that you can go into the app store and download an alternative browser. I actually will get briefly into my stupid browser story. So yeah, you know, I'm all about competition. I want to make sure I have the best thing. So every now and then I'm, I'm like Google search, you know, you're doing me okay, but what are, what's up with these other search engines? I download another search engine by a company that uh, let's just say is not lacking for resources to make a good search engine. And, uh, what do I do? This is preposterous, right? But like, 
you Google your own name, right? You to see like, that's a good way to compare because you know yourself. So what pops up, you'll have a good idea of like how relevant the search terms are. So I, I, I love that I'm even using the, the word Google when I explain what I did on the other browse, uh, search engine. So I, I searched my own name and on one, on the Google, it's, you know, you, what do you want? You want your professional profile. You want anything that's in like a major publication because that's like more relevant. Um, and this is great. This is yet another connection to uh, my fraught American-European relations. I wrote an article years ago on degrowth. And basically, it was a very respectful article. Like, it was not um, shin-kicking the way I am right now. It was like a very serious dive into, does this make sense? And ultimately deciding, you know, degrowth is kind of doesn't make sense, basically because the way you solve problems is by extracting energy and you need energy to have even just ideas, blah, blah, blah. Well, this couple of people at this, um, I, I, maybe it's a think tank, some group, a couple of Germans wrote this article just ripping into me about like not really approaching my argument so much as like the classic, um, now we call it woke or whatever of, of like you by virtue of who you are, are not allowed to make these arguments because you're in the first world and whatever. Even though I'd said that like, the people would be most harmed by degrowth or in the third world. I digress. Why? And so, but this article, although it was not in a publication, it was just some random small German thing, activist group's website, but it mentioned my name a bunch of times because they're talking about how evil I am and how stupid I am. Uh, well, in the alternative browser, that's like the first result because this other search engine, uh, I said browser, this other search engine, it's like, oh, well, his name was mentioned a bunch of times. This must be relevant. I'm like, oh, I hate this search engine. This product sucks. <laughs> so I ditch it and go back to Google. Um, so that is such a, that's just a dumb little story. But it's talking about the fact that like consumers are not potted plants, right? I'm assuming I am not abnormal in going and checking out other products and seeing if I like them, deciding that I don't. Um, Oh, I've taken this completely off the rails. Okay, Dirk, bring no, things. But it, there's, yeah, it's, I, it's a common, it's a theme of the, you know, the Android decision. There's a lot of exposed rationalizing by the commission where it's, it has these heroic assumptions, you know, consumers don't sideload, they don't download apps free via the app store. Um, consumers don't see um, iPhone as a competitor, as a competitor to, um, or don't see iOS as a competitor to Android, things like that. It's, um, yeah, I, it, I think it's problematic. Now I'm being facetious, but I will say sometimes my impulse, I'm like, if consumers aren't capable of pulling out their fingers and pulling up the app store and downloading a separate uh, search engine, there's no saving them. <laughs> you know, it's just, well, then too bad. Okay, I, um, I, I, I do wanna ask, you know, I wanna see a competitive atmosphere. I, I think I'm not engaging in like false consciousness when I say I would love for there to be a European Apple. Like I would love for Ericsson to be creating the next big smartphone, or I would love it to be some company I haven't heard of. And, you know, going to the theme that often things are competition for the market, um, you know, good luck building a better search engine now, but you can create the whole new thing that replaces search engines. You know, I'd love to see Europe do that. I don't care. I, I want to see cool, uh, useful stuff wherever it comes from. Uh, this is like an impossible question, but do you have thoughts on like, why are we not seeing your, and to be clear, Europe has some cool tech companies. It has some innovative companies. Um, Spotify, if you work at Spotify, you know, you're innovative. I'm not saying there's nobody there, but like there's been a failure in Europe to create these uh, jackpot success dominant tech firms. And why is that? Yeah. Um... You know, to I think the best the best answer is I would uh, I would quote Shakespeare, um, Julius Caesar, and say the fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars but in ourselves. And I think the, the European Union has to look inwards and think a little bit about all the the reasons that um, might lead to that, rather than just saying, well, this is all the fault of American big tech. So here are a couple of reasons. 
First, there's just the question of specialization, right? Um, ever since Ricardo and Adam Smith, we understand that different countries might be good at different things. And it turns out that the US is extremely good at creating tech companies. And there's, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. If you look at um, other areas, like, for example, um, vaccines, the, U- the European Union has really been mm. at the forefront of stuff like mRNA vaccines, and that's mm. fine. So that's one thing that's happening. Um, I don't think that's entirely um, satisfactory as an excuse, because you'd still expect the European Union to be doing a little bit better than what it's currently doing uh, in tech markets. So that you, you can look to other explanations. Um, maybe European tax and labor regimes and corporate laws are less attractive and so deter people from starting firms. There's clearly an argument to be made that European capital markets are more fragmented than they are in the US. So it's harder if you're a European startup to raise money um, than it is probably for American startups. Um, and you know, another one is just the European Union is not um, a single market in the same way that the United States is. And so maybe for products that where there is um, the economies of scale, you really have an advantage to launch in a very big market like the United States. So these are all possibilities. I don't know which one is a better explanation, but I think they're all forces at play here and are, are much more important Um, It's much more important to understand those in order to understand why European Union doesn't have tech firms than just looking at antitrust enforcement. I think that's the wrong place to look. Um, Well, this has been so much fun. We're getting a little long in the tooth here, but I do want to um, ask you quickly about the Digital Markets Act. Um, Commissioner, and I, I have apologize if I've been mispronouncing her name the whole episode. I do my best. Vestager, Vestagar. Um, Your I guess is as good as mine. Okay, I was going with Vestager. Sorry, sorry. You know, I, I do my best. Um, she can claim some personal success here, certainly in getting it passed. Um, whether it will be a success for the EU economy or society is, of course, another question going to this question of, uh, you know, are, and you want to talk about something that is actually maybe in the long term will entrench incumbents. So they've, they've, there's been an attempt here, I think, which is something of progress on one level of not making the law so it just entrenches incumbents. Now, the flip side of that coin can be, are you sort of uh, targeting individual firms for retribution? And, you know, there's a balance there. I will just flag that as one issue that's going on. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Digital Markets Act passed in Europe, going into effect uh, basically immediately in terms of the steps that are being created to figure out how it works, should be live and running by early 2024, which actually there's a lot here and between here and there, although I don't think we should dive into all those details. Um, But very briefly, you know, what's going on with that and what effect do you see it having? So... You know, just for context, I think it's useful to, um, you can think of the DMA as the European equivalent to the ICOA bill in the United States. So what it's trying to do is make competition enforcement much easier to bring against big tech firms. Now, the the huge question is, well, will it uh, make a difference, quote, unquote? And I think the answer to that question depends on how you think about um, something that you already mentioned. Is it the case that firms like Google, Facebook, Amazon, Apple are successful because they're artificially keeping rivals out of the market? If you think that's the case, then probably you also think that the DMA is going to make a big difference. On the other hand, if you think that Google, Amazon, Facebook, Apple are really successful because their products are better, then I think the DMA makes very little makes very little difference. I can, I can use actually an, an example to better illustrate this. I've mentioned a couple of competition cases like Android. Um, and there's a, common, there's a common theme that runs across these cases, which is the commission has been somewhat successful in bringing the actual case, imposing a fine. But then it also asks for remedies. So for firms like Google to stop doing what they were doing. And 
As far as those remedies are concerned, I think it's fair to say that they have not been a success. Basically, rivals complain about them all the time. And the reason for that is simple. These remedies, they can't, you know, make a rival great. They can only say, well, you know, if you're um, Google, make your rival's life a little bit easier. So it, it gives them a bit of a nudge. Um, that's, that seems, it seems that it's not enough. Like I, I could give you an example of one remedy. If you're Google and you're told, well, from now onwards on all Android devices, when a user boots up his Android mobile phone for the first time, he'll be given a choice screen of browsers, okay? So he'll be, be able to choose between Google Chrome and uh, Safari, um, Microsoft Edge browser. And so the user will be able to choose. And it turns out that those users choose Google Chrome. Um, or, or even, you know, I'll, I'll, I can even, it's not just that users choose Google Chrome. It's that Google says, well, you know, we need to select which browsers will be in the choice screen. The way we'll do that is via an auction. And it turns out that the rivals are very poor at winning those auctions, presumably because they don't earn much revenue from their browsers. They're not very efficient at doing um, a search engine. Um, yeah, I think that these, the failure of these remedies really shows that you know, what's happening is big tech firms have very good products and it's hard to compete with them. And that's a good thing for consumers. But yeah, some people feel otherwise. We, we shall see. Um, <laughs> as we close out, Dirk, um, I'm always seeing you pop up with, with interesting work. Um, I love the folks at ICLE and you do a lot of good collaborations with them. So um, are there any upcoming projects or publications that you'd like to uh, preview or uh, if it's already out, tell us about? Well, we, we've, we've got a number of uh, pieces of work in the pipeline, but there's one I, I in, I'm particularly excited about, which, um, which we call the origins of platforms and evolutionary perspective. And the idea of that paper, I think, is very relevant to the, the discussion we've been having today. It's saying, well, today we see the commission and other competition authorities trying to make online platforms um, more open, more accessible to rivals. And what we say in the paper is, well, it turns out that Google and Android or other platforms weren't always dominant. There was a time when they were competing with other firms. And it turns out that when they were competing with other firms, some of those other platforms were very open, like say Linux, and some of them were more closed. And it turns out that consumers tend to prefer the closed platforms over the open ones. Now, this isn't, this isn't an absolute rule. It's more about striking a balance between openness and closeness or centralization, decentralization. But there's clearly a sense that um, the digital platforms that we see today and the way they're structured is at least in part a response to consumer preferences. So by trying to decentralize these platforms and make them more open, the commission doesn't seem to be serving the best interests of consumers. Um, and I'm very excited about that paper. Uh, sounds fantastic. It does remind me of a conversation I had on, of course we had to, we had a Web3 episode and it's like, uh, if everything is completely decentralized, who is building the user interface for uh, normies who aren't like experts at code and do you not end up with the same kind of Web2 dominance? Um, yeah, we, I, we talk about, um, about Web3 in the paper and you'll, you know, it's interesting to note that in the very open um, ecosystem that is Web3, it's some of the closed platforms like OpenSea and Coinbase that have been most successful, at least so far. That might change in the future, but um, it's definitely not the case that Web3 is sort of this um, decentralized utopia where consumers are always rejecting um, centralized controlled platforms. That's not the case, I don't think. Well, as the future unfolds, we will definitely have to have you back on. This has been fantastic, Dirk. Thank you so much for your time. Um, really appreciate you coming on. I am Corbin Barthold. I've been joined by Dirk Auer of the International Center for Law and Economics. 
Um, hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have, please do go give us that five-star rating wherever you listen. It is a huge help. And while you go do that, I will get started on the next one. Thank you so much. Cheers. Thank you. The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax-deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.